when I am really interested in something, I, I get super focused on that. And I would hear the underground hovering across the line. I would mimic that sound. I think in pictures, I don't think in language. What you probably don't know is that my brain is different than yours. Because I'm autistic. Hello listeners, welcome to episode four of the Drumbeat Autism Outreach Podcast. In this episode, we are exploring the topic of tabletop role-playing games and why they might be both appealing and potentially also beneficial to some autistic people. I'm your host, Charlie, and in this episode, we welcome back Pete Black, as well as our special guest, Emmy Watkins, who joins us all the way from LA. Right at the start, I want to assure you that no prior knowledge of tabletop role-playing games, or TTRPGs for short, is required in order for you to gain something from this episode. In fact, to the contrary, we hope that this episode will be an introduction to listeners who know nothing about this particular subject. We feel that whilst the subject itself is quite niche, our discussion covers some very universal ideas around autism, which include ideas around role-playing, structured social time, the comfort of rules, storytelling, and of course, special interests and the communities around them. Being mindful that most listeners will not be familiar with tabletop role-playing games, I will now give you a brief overview just to set the scene. Tabletop role-playing games, or TTRPGs, the most popular and famous of which is Dungeons & Dragons, are a genre of recreational group activities which on the surface look a lot like board games, although they can also be played online over a Zoom call or similar. In-person games usually involve about three to six players sat around a table with dice, an A4 sheet of paper, and occasionally a board with playing pieces. The difference between a TTRPG and a typical board game is that each player role plays a character that they have designed and much of the action takes place through collective storytelling and improvisation. Dice rolling tends to happen when somebody wants to do something that has a possibility of failure, but a lot of the social interaction in the game is acted out in character. The game is run by a games master or dungeon master who builds up the world, keeps track of the rules and role plays other characters in the game. In a nutshell, a TTRPG is kind of like a combination of a classic board game, improvisation, collective storytelling, problem solving and teamwork. Dungeons and Dragons specifically takes place in a Lord of the Rings slash Game of Thrones type setting. But other TTRPGs could be on anything from science fiction to murder mysteries or even a game where you play as go-karting pandas. This episode kicks off with a conversation where I explain to podcast regular Pete my reasons for wanting to do a whole episode on TTRPGs. We assume that most listeners, like Pete, know absolutely nothing at all about the subject, so fear not. The first section will hopefully give you a little bit more sense about why we are talking about this. Following that, you will hear our interview with Emmy Watkins. Emmy is an autistic tabletop role-playing gamer who is part of a group called The Adventurous Pack who produce a bunch of online content relating to both Dungeons & Dragons and TTRPGs in general. Emmy agreed to talk to Pete and I about her own experiences and explore some of the connections between tabletop role-playing games and autism. A quick note before we start. You'll notice that most of the time in this episode, we just reference Dungeons & Dragons, or D&D for short. D&D is the most well-known and popular role-playing game of this kind, and it's also the one that I personally play and have played with a group of teenagers within a school setting. However, in this episode, it's used as a shorthand for any tabletop role-playing games of a similar nature. Most of what we discuss is even relevant to other role-playing activities or structured communication games beyond TTRPGs. With all that said, let's get on with the episode, and we hope you will agree that by looking at something on the surface that seems quite niche, we nevertheless touch on many universal themes around the subject of autism. So joining me on this episode of the podcast is a voice that you listeners will know well, and that is the voice of Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello there. Um, and you, like many of the listeners, will not have played or not be familiar with the game Dungeons and Dragons. Is that correct? That is very correct. Um, up until up until I met you, actually, Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons was merely a concept, maybe not even a concept to me. You know, I wasn't sure if it was a you know, a, a real life action kind of role play thing, or if it was a board game, or if it was a card game or a trading game, I had no clue whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I'm a complete Dungeons and Dragons novice. 
Okay. Well, I think I think um, a lot of listeners us will be comforted f- from that because I think that's how most people will feel listening to this podcast. I'm going to uh, explain to you, Pete, and also our listeners, um, kind of why I thought it would be quite a nice kind of topic of conversation because I've had a bit of experience around playing Dungeons and Dragons with autistic young people, uh, and and I find it a kind of fascinating subject that kind of brings up a lot of kind of although it's quite niche and quite specific I think it'll bring up a kind of a few kind of fairly universal um, areas of interest when talking about kind of autism when I was teaching in a sort of specialist school quite a few years ago um, a friend of mine set up a Dungeons and Dragons club and uh, I think five five young people signed up for it and all five of those young people I believe were um, had a diagnosis of autism and he sort of felt at the time that this this club that was happening was a really engaging but also really useful and uh, interesting kind of way for these five young people to kind of meet each other to socialize and to sort of have fun together but he also felt there was sort of some some learning going on there as well it wasn't just sort of a, an after school club that was a lot of fun there was sort of a lot going on there fast forward a few years and i and i'm working in a, a sort of mainstream college i I'm sort of noticing a bunch of young people who I was a senko, so young people who who are sort of within within my care. Some of whom uh, are autistic, some of whom have kind of school-based anxiety, and um, others who maybe just have some social communication difficulties um, without necessarily an autism diagnosis. And I realised there wasn't really much going on in terms of extracurricular activities for the for that kind of subgroup. So, so following my friend's lead, I set up a Dungeons and Dragons club, and lo and behold, eight young people signed up. And you know, without going into numbers, like I, I can say, the, the the vast majority kind of came under one of those broad categories. Either they they had an, an, an autism diagnosis, or they had sort of school based anxiety, kind of weren't coming in necessarily every day because they found school quite challenging and um, some with kind of undiagnosed social communication difficulties and, it, and I've run it for two years and it was an absolute rip-roaring success if, if I must say so myself like the, the young people turned up they they were talking about it in the corridors they were kind of coming up and knocking on my office door kind of wanting to talk about the next session they were like really really fully engaged in this game um, and, I, and, and, and so I started googling Dungeons Dragons and Autism and, and realized that this is this isn't this isn't unique this is a thing that there's quite a big autistic community within the within the Dungeons and Dragons community um, and also a lot written about kind of maybe some of the benefits to young people on playing the game um, so not just the fact that it's something that there seems to be a lot of interest in but also that there are things that are helpful about it in terms of kind of you know progression and learning and and all that sort of stuff. So we are now welcoming to the call our special guest this week, uh, and that is Emmy. Hello, Emmy. Hello. So lovely to meet you guys. And lovely to meet you. And coming in all the way from uh, Los Angeles as well. (laughs) Yes, the other end of the world, almost. (laughs) Our podcast has gone international, and we're still only only in the first few episodes, so I'm feeling quite quite proud of that. (laughs) How far you'll go. We kind of wanted to get on. Uh, to the podcast and autistic D&D player um actually not not just player but expert <laughs> I think. oh oh, the, 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 oh gosh <laughs> let me uh, let me get my my put my glasses on a little bit higher here okay <laughs> I, I, I think we can go as far as calling you a D&D expert given that you have a uh, have various kind of YouTube channels that are talking about Dungeons and Dragons which we'll I'm sure you'll have a chance to talk about in a minute can you introduce yourself to listeners in relation to sort of Dungeons Dragons and autism? Absolutely, I can. Uh, yeah, um, my name's Emmy, and I, I am an autistic D&D player. Um, I started playing D&D in college uh, with a bunch of friends. It was weirdly one of those things that had, had been kind of gatekept, I believe is the big word they use, where um, a lot of the the people I knew who played in high school didn't really want anything to do with me, and that was fine. I didn't know that I necessarily wanted anything to do with them. But then in college, I met a bunch of just really awesome nerds, many of whom I actually still work with today. Uh, I work on a TTRPG and nerd-based podcast, but it is largely Dungeons & Dragons um, podcast Twitch shows uh, called um, called Adventurers Pack, and I help produce and run that. Uh, so I've been playing it now for the better part of 10 years. 
And it's something that really gave me an opportunity to thrive. I would say that a lot of my adult friendships at some point or another come back to D&D. Uh, and a lot of professional opportunities and things that I do and create out here in the greater Los Angeles area came about because of it. Um, and very similarly, actually, it was around that time that I got more formally aware of being autistic. Uh, being a girl in the 90s uh, in, the, in America, they didn't really... Um, bless my parents, basically got everything but the diagnosis from the childhood, my childhood counselors. Uh, so they were very aware of everything that was going on with me, but I didn't have the, the, the formal title because in the 90s, little girls didn't have autism. We just needed better social skills. Uh, so <laughs> um, it, but around that time was really when I was becoming aware of it. Um, so in many ways, actually kind of exploring those identities overlapped. It, there's also kind of a love of theater that came from this. When I was a little kid and I was so horribly awkward and I didn't want, I was totally fine just sitting in the back and reading my books and doing my homework and I was fine with that. Uh, all the teachers were very, very worried that I was not, uh, my social skills were terrible and they were very, very, very concerned. And so my parents put me in theater uh, to try and get me to talk to people. And weirdly, very similarly to D&D that it felt very much like home in that way. It felt very much like theater where there's 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 rules and there's a, a rule for communication and you have to think about the emotions and you have to think about the moment before in a very logical, lined out fashion. And it's it's way less anxiety inducing when there's a script or a rule book in this case. So I yeah, it's been definitely freeing for me. That's amazing. And um, um, one of the things that I, I do want to say for the listeners is that, you know, and, and I think Sonia, when, when she interviewed you, Pete, said this as well. One thing that I think we want to be really clear on this podcast is when we talk to people, you know, no one person can talk about autism in terms of the, the entire community. And we're not going to ask you to do that. You know, we of want course. to find out your, your, <laughs> your, your own personal, very specific kind of interest and in, and in, in, in everything in D&D. Oh, sure. But we're not saying that, you know, all autistic people will feel feel this way about Dungeons and Dragons and oh, so on. And, and, and sure. great having having Pete here as well, as he's already said, like this this probably wouldn't be my cup <laughs> of tea. Work. Um, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's an interesting starting point, Pete. When when we were sort of messaging on WhatsApp backwards and forwards, setting this up, I sent you a video, a short intro video about kind of what D and D is. <laughs> I watched I watched it thrice, Charlie, three times. Three times. <gasps> And you, I don't know if you remember saying this, but you texted back. You said, I can definitely see why it appeals to uh, autistic people. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, Pete, yeah. can you explain that yeah. a little bit? Because I think it'll be a good launching off point for, for, for Emily. Okay, really. so, so this is just my interpretation based on the minute kind of amount of information that I have about Dungeons and Dragons at the moment. But but certainly when I was researching, i.e. watching this, this, uh, this eight-minute video uh, three times that Charlie sent me, um, I think what, what really struck me was the amount of structure around the game and the amount that could be invested in um, a game or in a character. The, the rules and the kind of sub-rules. It's one of these things, isn't it, where, where the outside world is, is very, very confusing and it doesn't always, it very rarely comes with a manual um, or a, a rule book suggesting how you do life. And I think that, that that is quite often a common battle with autistic people um, is knowing, you know, having this kind of knowledge of I'm definitely getting this right. You know, actually really struggling with that affirmation, that self-affirmation of I'm doing the right thing in this situation or in this scenario. I'm acting in a way people would expect me to act or I've, I've got the right end of the stick here. I'm, I'm understanding this um, the way that I should be understanding it and my interactions are appropriate in this in the setting. I think in stark contrast, it seems that everything that surrounds Dungeons and Dragons seems to be um, very kind of... I don't, I don't know if prescriptive is the right word, but, but it, it does seem that there, there are um, certain kind of rules and consequences of, you know, perhaps breaking or bending rules or um it seems that you have to become accountable for your your actions and you've actually got a very clear intent throughout a game of of, of dungeons and dragons which i could imagine 
from a, a, an artistic point of view, I can imagine could be very, very reassuring. Um, it could also be quite exciting because when we've got confines, then it's much, much easier to, to thrive because we we know where our limits are. We know what area we have to work in. It's not this kind of uh, free-for-all, but actually having some prescribed kind of um, rules just to, to, to follow or guidelines um, can make general living quite, quite a lot more easy. So I can imagine in a game scenario, you could really actually bring out the enjoyment of this thing where there is a tremendous amount of freedom with regards to um, how games play out and interactions throughout games and stuff, but it is actually governed by quite a lot of structure. I'd really like to know from you um, whether or not anything I've said at all makes any sense as a seasoned uh, Dungeons & Dragons player, I guess. Oh, Pete, nail right on head. I'll be perfectly honest with you, even from the outside. That's pretty much exactly how I feel about it, is that it's freedom with structure. Uh, D&D campaigns, uh, typically, you know, there's uh, the stereotype of your characters all start in a tavern together, and you start in this small room, and you all meet, and it's very very little at the beginning, but very grand at the end. And you have to deal with keeping track of the little things and the big things, but all, there's always a structure to it. And it's very, very well-defined. And of course those rules can be bent and broken to a degree, but you're right, there, there's consequences and you know where those rules are. You there's, there's many books, you can pull them out and see exactly where those rules are for how you do everything. Uh, and at some point there's also that freedom of knowing that with just even just the basic social skills like you it you know it it gives you a freedom to explore those social skills in a way that maybe your character is good at it or maybe your character is bad at it but it's on that sheet no matter what it's on that sheet and so you you can you can play with that um and the cooperative part and that's especially where i think Mm. that we could Mm. That's one of the biggest things that I think young autistic people could benefit from okay. from this it is is it's so important because and it, it and of course it doesn't always work but that's that's part of the fun of course but like you have the big campaign stuff that you've got to take care of there's the stuff that's happening that's very important to the game itself but then there's also what your character wants which may or may not have anything to do with the campaign proper you've made it up. Uh, you've made up what this character needs to be fulfilled. Right. And someone else needs something else, and they may or may not always get along, but you get to play out getting along or not getting along with a very large safety net. Um, at, at the very least, I, I, and this is, of course, a very important thing about D&D, is that's very important uh, when playing that kind of a game that you have a lot of trust and love with the people at the table with you, which is also something that, though that D&D can foster. Like, I again, I, I know I've made lifelong friends that I had never met before sitting down at a table. Okay. Because we had to have those that, that cooperation in the game yeah. fostered it then in real yeah. life, which was great. You get all these little rules and details that it could also get in really fun to like a special interests thing where right. like you can know all of these rules about how the fighter subclasses work and I do uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I like it and I want to know more and I will tell you all about what all these different things do uh, and so it it's a really fun lining up of, of, of fantasy world building history math uh, any of those things that you can have a real special interest in there's all of that in D and D. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk we talk quite a lot in the sort of in 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 the line of work that me and Pete do when we talk to parents and professionals who may be trying to kind of understand the young people that they work with a little bit kind of more. We talk quite a lot about special interests, and we kind of talk about more generally like what what makes a good special interest, uh, uh, because it has to be something that you can take a really deep dive on if you want to. And one of the aspects of D&D that I've certainly, a rabbit hole that I've certainly gone down is the monster manual. So you have a, a book of rules, Pete, which is kind of called the, the player's handbook. And you have a book of rules for the dungeon master, which is called the dungeon master's handbook. But you also have the monster manual, which is is, is less about kind of the general player playing rules, but just a lot of lore about the various monsters that you can kind of encounter in the game. And one of the young people that I played with like that was his thing like he was like 
I'm going to buy the monster manual and I, as a player, not necessarily as a character, I'm going to be obsessed with the monsters. And he was like looking through all the stats, learning everything, because there's a lot of stats for each monster and a lot of kind of information. And one of the things that I, as a DM working with young people put into the game was he went into a library and he uh, into a bookshop and he bought like an in-game version of the monster manual, which allowed him to kind of have that depth of knowledge as well. So, so, so as, as, as a player, you can take a massive kind of deep down kind of this rabbit hole of, of information, which kind of relates to a special interest. As a character within the game, you are trying to think about what your character would do. And sometimes you can mesh those two things together. And often people design characters that aren't hugely dissimilar to who they are in, okay. in real life. Certainly kind of when you play with someone the first, the first time, sometimes younger people will just sort of do a, a slightly uh, kind of idealized version of themselves right. or whatever. <laughs> right. to, to, so, that, so they'll choose strengths that they consider to actually be their strengths, but they just kind of ramp them up, which, which, is, which is great, I think, for self-esteem and stuff like that as well when we're thinking about younger players. Yes. So it's, it's almost like an avatar in that, in that way. Calling it an avatar in that way, that's such a, a great way of putting it because, yeah, it's a, a projection of yourself. And sometimes the more you play, the more of a deep delve that can get, and the more you can start playing people who are very similar to you people who are very different from you and it gives you again that safe place to explore mm -hmm. other people uh, but also yourself okay. in many yeah. ways yeah. uh you have to logic through what this character wants what they need and their emotions about it and you have to logic through what they know versus about the world versus what they don't uh, like you were saying, Charlie, with, with your kid who loved the mother. God, that's so cute. Uh, you have to, because at some point you do know a lot more about the world than probably your character does. Uh, and so uh, you you have to just be aware of all of this knowledge and thinking about it. But again, it's weirdly a structure uh, for thinking about emotions and needs. And it's so much less anxiety inducing than actually <laughs> sitting down for yourself and going through that kind of stuff. I know I'll get stuck even on just, you know, what do, what, what do I need to eat and stuff like that. But for some of my characters, that's that's not hard. It's, <laughs> it's not hard at all. So you can just kind of project that and it's great. It's great. I think there is also the, the I mean, just judging by what you, you've you've said on the subject, Emmy, I think that, um, that, that sometimes, again, just speaking from, from, from my personal kind of experience as an autistic person, I will find it much, much easier to be able to look at a situation from the outside that I'm not involved in and make rational decisions, make um, correct choices, um, give advice, um, and, and generally feel that I've got the the kind of upper hand in that situation because I'm removed from it. However, in my own kind of situation, life, life situations, I guess, um, with an injection of emotion um, and and with uh, the idea of having consequences for getting things wrong and all this kind of stuff, um, I feel very, very clouded sometimes in my decision making, in my interactions and stuff because of all the, um, the, the, the surrounding pressures. So I could imagine with this being, you know, almost like a I don't want to say a dry run at life, but but there are definitely from from what you say, there are definitely kind of correlations between, um, you know, real life scenarios perhaps, and uh, and plays in games or the way that games may play out, the thought processes, the interactions you might have to have with other people that may be easier to to have in a gaming realm than they they might perhaps be in in real life. I don't know if that does that make any any sense at all total sense one thing i'll add to what you said pete is is that we talk about consequences and i might talk about this a little bit more, more later on because yeah. there's, a, there's a really lovely example that i want to talk through with you guys a bit later on in the podcast and hopefully I, I won't forget but um the the consequences in D D, the stakes are both incredibly high and also zero at the same time uh -huh. because if you make a bad decision in D D, you could potentially destroy the world right oh but yeah also big, at the same time big consequence <laughs> but also at the same time you walk away and go and have your dinner afterwards because like the the the, the stakes are zero as a as a person playing yeah. but your the stakes for your character are massive so you can you can play around with the consequences of of your actions in a very 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 high stakes way without there being any real world consequence right. 
Oh, for sure. Exactly. Like I know, bless, in one game I'm playing, I have this character where I I set her with very high consequences because apparently (laughs) I just like to stress myself out, but for fun. Um, (laughs) I, I set her up with this like person who's chasing her like across the universe. I wrote that for myself and then told the dungeon master to just do that to us and the players and the consequences are super high and terrifying because that could absolutely and that's the other thing that started to become very scary that again gets into your relationship with the other friends that's not just coming for me now it's coming for my friends and it's it's so much scarier now because it could hurt other people next to me but alternatively it's kind of fun to explore that in a zero actual real world consequence setting. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I can think about the the super high consequences or even just sometimes just the little things like you lose something. Uh, but I know I particularly play with a lot of people who are really into the, the role play aspect. Okay. Uh, I, combat is obviously built into a lot of TTRPGs with D&D. That's very inherently true. Uh, but we spent, we tend to chew around a lot in the scenes where we're just talking to each other. You spoke about combat. And I just wanted to kind of just make sure that, that, that we've got the, the record straight on this, that there is no physical combat yes. in this in this game you're not um you're not uh, wielding swords and spears and <laughs> shields or anything like that but, but, apart no, from occasionally but... throwing a, a 20-sided <laughs> dice at the dm if you get <laughs> i've wanted too many a time throw a die uh, so how, i mean how does yes. combat come how does combat come about or what, what does that look like um within Absolutely. the realm of dungeons and dragons well and this also i think this this will branch into other things so with your character sheet you have a big old set of numbers that's you and at some point if there's a bad guy and the bad guy can be an antagonist or even just simply a a very angry animal that's in the way and you have to fight it uh there are each there's classes for each character and that that defines how you exist in the world. And a large part of that is how you fight other things. For, for, for the listeners who've never played before, you know, ultimately you're sat around a table like you would be if you were playing a board game. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about role play, like role play is role play. You are pretending to be someone talking to someone else who's pretending to be someone else. So that's mm-hmm. role play. And the role play plays out like you're on stage acting or improvising is, is a better word for it. Mm-hmm. You then have the adventuring, which is, which is more about decision-making which is where you kind of like you walk into a cave and there's a chest over here and there's a there's a torch over there and things are happening and 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 as a group you decide what you're going to do are you going to go and raid the chest are you going to go and do, do this that and the other but the combat bit is where it kind of turns into a, a much more of a conventional board game like often yep. you get a map out you get your dice out you take turns like it's, it's like with role play role play and the adventuring bits of it you don't take turns like you would do in a game of monopoly but in the combat bit it suddenly turns into essentially a board game now there is still role playing elements to it like we don't, oh, i don't sure. want to go kind of go get too sort of technical here but essentially they the rules become more strict during combat and there is there are certain things you can do and there, are, and there are only a certain number of things you can do on your turn. So, so this kind of massive amount of freedom that you get when you're adventuring and role-playing, when he turns into combat, that's when the dungeon master gets the monster manual out and starts looking at numbers. <laughs> and that's when you get your character sheet out and start rolling uh-huh. dice. Okay. So, so some people, that kind of um, structured environment that you were talking about, Pete, like that is the most structured bit of the game. And it's the most board game-like bit of the game. But it's also important to know that it's a part of the game and it's a part of the game that some people really love the most and other people like i've played in a campaign where uh, all the other players seem to love the combat so it essentially was almost like a board game night because you were going from combat to combat and i've played in 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 campaigns where we almost never rolled for combat because uh because they were so into the the, the role role playing bit of it yeah definitely different groups of people and and even just like from different characters with the same players sometimes it'll just end up whether you end up in combat more or if you end up in in role play more Mm. um uh, once again that also speaks to the consequences part of this sometimes you just have characters who end up in combat more because maybe they are not great (laughs) at saying the right thing (laughs) so they end up getting punched a lot more we all know people Uh, people like that in real life don't we (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. But that's kind of the thing. You get to explore that pretty pretty much with a lot of freedom. To talk about that just a little bit more with the the, the characters, which are a bunch of numbers. It that's just so great to me. I don't know why that's just so deeply, deeply helpful to me that you can tell how, and you have to think of different reasons why this is. So there's a number for, uh, between one and 20 for six stats. There's um, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, strength, dexterity, and constitution. And the higher, the, the closer the number is 20, the better you are at that thing. Okay. Uh, okay. And 10 is an average dude. So 10 is... Regular person walking down the street probably has a ten in everything, but you're you're a character, so you're you're better because right. you're special from the word go. Yeah. At least in D and D, looking at that, I have to think: Why are they these numbers? What do these actually mean for this person? And that's so fun. That's so helpful for me because uh, <laughs> I can think about: Okay, they have a a. I have one another character who's got a seven wisdom. What does that actually mean mm, for them? Mm. Why, how are they, because wisdom is generally, you know, how good are you at making decisions or telling what people need from you mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. interacting with certain different skills. And so I have to think about what that civil wisdom means specifically for that character only, because it's going to be different for someone else. <laughs> the incredible thing as well, and, and I'm thinking back again to, to not necessarily the, the, the games where I play, but more the games that I've kind of run with younger people. When, when, when you get someone who's got a, a charisma, a high charisma score. So, so their character is charismatic, and they know that their character is charismatic because they look at their sheet, and their the number that goes next to charisma is very high. And then, when you watch that young person play that character, regardless of how charismatic or not they are in real life, they play the character as charismatic, and suddenly their version of charisma comes forward so um in one particular example that, that i'm thinking of you know very sort of uh polite kind of well-spoken this kind of knight steps forward it starts giving quite kind of a long eloquent language and, and 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 sort of even his posture when he was talking kind of changed um and he and, and he was approaching situations by going d d put your swords away i'm going to talk about this you know and this was not the this was a kind of a, a young a young man who was didn't didn't display those kind of attributes day to day as part of a kind of i guess his own his own strengths but but was able to switch it on because his character sheet said you're charismatic and therefore he played charismatic and and it was amazing to see how this 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 piece this a piece of a4 paper that has numbers on it was impacting was allowing these young people to explore and experiment with bits of their personality that weren't high kind of all the time but they they were suddenly given permission to be charismatic or strong or wise or intelligent you know permission i i think that's so it's so interesting that word permission and it, it uh -huh. is so stuck with me too do you know what you just you just feel sometimes in it and again you know as i would always say i can only speak for myself but you you, you just feel sometimes in life i I would be quite good at life if I knew exactly what I was given permission to do and what I was given permission to say and all that kind of stuff. I think I would do reasonably well, but I'm absolutely crippled by not knowing if that's okay to say, not knowing if that's okay to do. Um, I think that whole aspect of um, having permission to try out this persona, because actually my character is dictated in this way, um, and and to be able to sort of examine that that thing of oh what does it what does it look like to be assertive for example i'm i'm not assertive in real life i don't know how this works how this you know um but i can somehow um i can take and i can project my um concept of assertiveness into this character and what what a wonderful thing that that just i find that so interesting i completely agree if you felt that you weren't very assertive, for example, but but you were said, right, okay, you're not assertive, but you're going to carry play this character called Ben, and 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 I want you to get up and pretend to be assertive. Like you you might know how to play assertive, right. even if you don't feel like you're assertive in life. Yeah. I don't know if does that if that if that rings true to you, Pete, in any way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's that it's it's that 
thing, isn't it, with actors as well, of um, how you can be a tremendous actor, but actually you are, although you can play multiple different characters in different films and TV series and stuff and have very, very distinct character traits throughout the different roles that you play, when all the lights go off, the cameras go off and you're, you're, you're back in your house, you are just just one person and these actual traits that you've been acting out are just traits that you're acting out rather than your own um kind of internalized experience of 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 those those uh, those feelings and those behaviors i can i completely agree again like having come from it having done theater and then bouncing into D D, there's i do think there's a significant amount of overlap with that sense of the script and who the person is and having discover who they are through their motivations in a very clinical is almost the wrong word, but in a sense where you are looking at it through a, almost a chart mm. and you, you have to see who that person is from the ground up all the way through. Um, it absolutely lines up. Uh, and I, I think it comes back to, I think that that deepened sense of importance of play, even as an adult uh, to discover new things in this environment with no consequences is it's so liberating. Uh, and it, it, it really absolutely does for me at the very least bounce into real life. I know I got better at meeting people and talking to other people and finding communities, having played D and D, even though I came to it later in life, it was helpful to me even as an adult. That's so interesting. Can, can I just ask on the back of that, just what, um, how oh, yeah. that actually plays out? So, um, if um, if you had like a hypothetical sort of example, or, or even a real world example of um, yeah. uh, how your experience with taking on role play and taking on um, <clears throat> analyzing of, of characters in Dungeons and Dragons um, and, or analyzing of behavior would then help to better inform you as to um, how to perhaps deal with a, a situation in a real life um, context. Sure. You know, I mean, it sounds like such a simple thing that I know a lot of the people in my life take just for simply and granted is that going into a room of strangers and finding a person to talk to. It's a mm. thing that happens in D&D ridiculously frequently. You have to go into a again, especially it's the first thing you do. You go into a room and you find a group of strangers and you start talking to them about a common thing that you have to do at that point in time. Okay. And that's nigh on impossible for me, at least on a base level. Like I that that was a skill that took years and years of honing that I know people who just do it. And it, yeah. it astounds me still to just watch them walk into a room and I'm like, okay, have fun. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah. it's still, I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't stress me out, but at the very least I'm aware of how that situation works. And I know because I've done it dozens of times at a table now yeah. where I've just had to do it. And I got to do it with people that I knew and trusted and had met before in real life but i'd never met their characters they're like it's like getting to know a new person every time um i was going to ask just because you had mentioned about um the the roles of, of particular players and their kind of quests but i was wondering if players have the option to do anything kind of naughty or evil or uh, would there be an objective uh, for a player to perhaps um, go out with the intention to destroy something rather than to improve it or to destroy society as opposed to actually making it making it better so each each when you create your character um, there are certain things that you make decisions about to do with that character in terms of the sort of moral side of it you choose an alignment um, and there are nine alignments within D&D, which I won't go into, but they are essentially kind of uh, one end of the spectrum is kind of lawful good, like always follows the rules, always does everything the way that they think things should be done. And at the other end of the spectrum is kind of chaotic evil. So um, evil for the sake of being evil, kind of there's, there's zero kind of idea of consequence in there. Um, now, when players... Uh, choose to play kind of an evil character then yes their character is kind of driven by evil however sometimes a dungeon master and this is how i do it with with um when i play with younger people is i i don't allow them 
and that's that's a, that's a rule of mine with younger people to choose a character that's got an evil alignment which means that if they are acting in an evil way then they are acting kind of against the character that they're playing and we're always trying to encourage people to think not what would you do what's not what's fun in this exact moment in time but what would your character do so every decision that um people make within the game should really be in line with what their character would do and so if they're choosing good characters which which uh when you're playing with younger people you'd hope would happen then 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 you you can sort of talk about moral choices in that way i do know of and i've never played one myself of kind of 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 dungeon masters who play evil campaigns where you have a bunch of evil characters um and they go around kind of burning down villages and and doing all that sort of stuff but that is a sort of a choice that is made before you kind of go into it um there's nothing stopping uh someone doing something naughty or bad within a game but a good dungeon master will then give it consequences so if you're if you're walking to a village and you suddenly go up and and i don't know sort of stab someone then you're going to go the dungeon master would, would get the guards to arrest you put you in jail and then it's not a very fun game for you if you're sat in, in jail whilst everyone else is carrying on with their adventure you know so i think i think one one thing to say is that you're looking at kind of early teens i guess before you really get you, there are there are versions of campaigns that you can play with younger kids there are. Um, but to get into like a proper a proper campaign you you, you want to be thinking about kind of you know, mid to late teens, because there is a, a gory element to it. It's like oh, a yeah. 15, 15 certificate, com- like computer game or, 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 or TV show, because you're, you're often, you know, slicing up monsters and things like that. So that, yeah. that's my only like little disclaimer. If, if, you know, you're, you're, you're a young person or parents of a young person who maybe have a special interest around the areas, kind of fantasy or, or maybe theatre or maybe kind of board games, and you've heard what we're kind of talking about in terms of Dungeons and Dragons being something that is fun. Um, we've also talked about m- a lot of the benefits, um, but I just want to kind of explore that a little bit more. And I teased earlier a story that I wanted to tell, an anecdote that I wanted to tell you. Okay. And um, and this is a young person that that played in a campaign. I, and there were there were hundreds of anecdotes I could have shared with you, but I felt this one was the one that I would talk about today because it felt kind of quite. Brought, brought up something interesting and this is around less around the kind of enjoyment but more about like what can a teenager um who has some social communication uh, differences uh learn from a game of D&D um and in this scenario there was a a young a young boy playing a uh, a character who who wanted he had decided that his character wanted to prefer, befriend a an orc queen so orcs for pete and the listeners are kind of generally kind of quite kind of relatively aggressive quite strong they're not necessarily evil but they are certainly kind of quite uh how would you describe them emmy they have a more their their culture is more based on war so Mm. it's finding some an orc queen who's just like yeah we're gonna be best friends is kind of like okay (laughs) <laughs> if, if you want i mean high goals lofty goals buddy <laughs> so so this this player decided that he wanted to befriend this this orc queen you know they, they they tend to sort of be um you know fairly short-tempered and fairly sort of you know set in their ways um and he had learned some some kind of a secret about this 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 queen uh this orc queen um and he approached her and she was surrounded by guards and his opening line was i know one of your secrets Whoa. Um, now I knew that he wanted to be her, he wanted his character to be his, her friend um, and that was his intention now as a DM I had to make a decision at that point what would she do what would the Orc Queen do and of course he got arrested <laughs> because yep. that was the kind of that was the stakes that's how high the stakes were and, and all that happened it was it was a really fun session he quite enjoyed kind of like the the kind of getting himself out of that situation all everyone else kind of kicked in and kind of tried to get him out of the situation but after the session, he came up to me as him, not as his character, and said to me, um, what did I do wrong? What did I, what did I do wrong? Okay. And yeah. I said, um, so when you said to her, I know one of your secrets, what were, you, what were you wanting to achieve? And he said, well, I thought that if she knew that I knew something about her, then we'd have something in common and then we could be friends. And, and so we had a conversation, actually that went on for quite a while afterwards about, about putting himself in 
the perspective of someone and not not an orc queen but somebody else <laughs> um and going up to them and that being your opening line sort of i know something about you and how that would be perceived and he kind of was able to talk through how actually yeah although my intention was to start a conversation and i just wanted her to know that i knew something about her as a starting point he could then see that that was maybe not the not the not not, not the, not best the safest kind of opening line now it goes back <laughs> to that whole thing of like very high stakes but also zero stakes because they're very high stakes because he was talking to this kind of orc queen surrounded by half giant guards like he got arrested which wouldn't happen in real life if you made a faux pas like that no one would arrest you <laughs> they'd just kind of so so the consequence was huge to actually a very very small misdemeanor but the talking point afterwards when he went back into himself and was able to talk through this i found really a really fascinating and engaging way to talk about perspectives to talk about when a social interaction doesn't go the way you hoped it would mm. mm-hmm. like that felt like a really good good talking point so that, that for me it identified that as as a possible um in the same way that we might talk about kind of things like drama therapy and things like that i saw that as a possible kind of benefit to the learning of someone who maybe doesn't always make the the best decisions with social interaction that that you can do that in dnd and kind of and reflect on it afterwards um i wanted to share that story with you but i guess i wanted to then open it up to sort of see as well as the sort of fun interesting like here are all the kind of cool things that that happened during a session is there anything else that you feel for a youngster playing it that they might kind of learn or or grow from or benefit from um in terms of kind of learning learning a bit about sort of some of the sort of complexities of life you know, um, I mean, that is a huge point. I've actually had very similar things even happen to me where I say something. I'm like, oh, no, that didn't. That wasn't what I meant. Uh, but I ha- you have to deal with it. And then you have to look back at it later and be like, oh, why? Right. Maybe that's not a thing we should have said. Uh, but as far as um, and I know we've, we've talked about it already, but cooperation is so such as a person who always wanted to do the group projects alone because I just I knew it would get done and I, I could handle it and it would be just fine. I hear you. And yeah. Have, yeah, right. One hundred percent. No group so projects, weird. but this is like the ultimate group project because you can't do it alone. Uh, when when you sit down at the table, the, there's always this um, the running thing in D and D is don't split the party. Uh, because it, the way that the game is designed and the way that the dungeon master has set everything up is generally speaking for all of the people in the room to handle it together. And if you split up and different people go in different directions or one person tries to handle something on their own or something like that, it's usually catastrophically bad. You don't split the party because it, just from a math standpoint, it's not good. You might die. It's bad. And so you you have to rely on other people from from the rp standpoints right down to the combat standpoints at some point you need everyone at that table and you have to get along you have to find ways to get along and you have to become invested in each other and each other's wants and needs uh because at some point the game only works if everyone works together and you have you have to be friendly you have to care for other people and you you have to not hog everything or try and do everything on your own um, because everyone has a specialty. Everyone's good usually at something very different. And you have to allow for room for that and do the things you're good at too. And everyone gets to be awesome, but you have to allow for everyone to be awesome. What I've seen as well in terms of social problem solving um, is, is people going, well, I think this is a great idea, but you'd be better at doing it because your character is the wise one. And so you're more likely to get the high role on this particular interaction. You're more likely um, to succeed. Yeah. So so I sometimes see people stopping their characters and start being players and starting to pro- problem solve based on the strengths and weaknesses of the characters, mm-hmm. which I think is quite nice. But then they can walk away from the table and think about that in terms of, you know, a social group and like, who's the, who's the person who's, who's, who should go and do this? Who's the person who should go and do that? Mm-hmm. Um, which is quite, quite an interesting one as well. Yeah. You have to think about other people very, a lot. You have, not only do you have that avatar of yourself and you have to think about their motivations, but you have to think about other people's avatars and what they need and what, what, what they're good at. And you have to remember that and, and let them do it. 
Um, although personally, especially with uh, TTRPGs, as having played it for long enough, it's it's so rewarding to be good at a thing. Uh, especially coming at this as an autistic person, it's so rewarding to be good at a thing. But now, having played it for so long, it's also really fun to be bad at a thing. That can be so much fun. But again, there's no particular consequences for it. Like I know I have a character who's just horrible at social interactions, and I think the first time I played D and D, I rarely did that. Um, but now, having played, I I I don't know. It's really fun to play a character who's really bad at social <laughs> situations because you can just wander into a conversation and ruin it. It's funny. The most fun you have playing the game is not when people roll twenty on it's a twenty sided dice. It's when people roll one on a twenty sided dice, because someone will go, "I'm going to attempt to leap up this 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 flight of stairs majestically with my sword out and re- and, and land uh, land on the top like an absolute hero." I'm gonna roll. I roll a one. You fall backwards on the stairs. <laughs> You're impaled on your own swords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. It's just always bad. But the again, slap, there's the slapstick. Uh huh. But there's that that freedom to fail. Um, okay. is so liberating. Just that that freedom. Like my character who has a seven wisdom, really tries. She really really tries to do stuff, and like she'll always be the first person. To like I'm just gonna leap over this thing, but she's not always good at it. But that's kind of the fun of it. Is she just kind of leaps in and just does stuff, and it's yeah. she fails a lot, and it's okay, and and funny, and but again, there's also those moments where I have to remember to let other people be good at that. Before we wrap up the episode, we wanted you to hear a quick clip of Emmy in action. We just heard her talking about how in role-playing games, sometimes failure can be fun. Well, in the next few seconds, you will hear a clip of Emmy on a live video stream with her adventurous pack companions. She's in character as Fess, a human paladin. And what you're hearing is some very low mid-battle roles interfering with her heroic role-play. As I dive my rapier into it, that will be 13 points of piercing. 13 points of magical piercing, but even with it being magical, Fess, you can tell it doesn't do quite as much. All right, well, I'll look at the tree and say, these are the only tools my god gave me left, okay? You're meeting me at the end of the day. Normally, I'd be a little more impressive. So I need you to know that for the next time I meet you when I smite you into the ground as I try and hit it with my rapier again. And that's a two on the die, so that's a 12 to hit. So I do nothing. (laughs) A 12 does indeed miss, Fess. Yeah. Uh, As you tell the at want four and telling it, yeah, this is going to be better next time, I promise. Anything else from you, Fess? No. Um, I just wanted to see Pete. Uh, have you uh, been in any way, shape, or form tempted into to tip to dip your toe into the dungeon after speaking to, to me and Emmy today? I don't know what that entails. I don't know what <laughs> dipping my toe or my tail into a dungeon involves. Um, <laughs> I think Sounds maybe so much more intimidating than it is, doesn't it? Just um, I, the the short the short answer is I'm I'm not sure how I would incorporate this sort of thing into my life i.e i don't have a i don't have an existing passion for it however my mind is more than open enough to um to take the time to really kind of have more of these conversations to watch the games to see if i can make links to the correlations within you know role playing and real life in my own life as well um it certainly sounds like an absolutely brilliant tool um kind of multifaceted faceted tool for helping um not just helping people but but um kind of aiding fun and aiding um like risk-free experiment i'd just like to know more about it at this at this kind of stage so i guess would you have anything that you would um suggest or kind of plug you know um it's easier now in the days of the internet than it was when I was trying to get into it. Um, these days, especially if you're coming at this from the perspective of an educator and a parent, um, and you want to make sure this is something that you you want to look into your kids first. Um, I, uh, but even even as an adult looking at it, there's um, multiple examples of people playing these games online. So there are multiple shows and things, uh, including mine, where we we play D&D and you can watch many versions of it because every table is different. So you can 
grab just a variety of things. If you look on YouTube or uh, sites like Twitch and things like that, or uh, podcasts, there's many, many podcasts as well, um, where you can listen and watch people play this game. And that is a great way to start, just because even if you don't necessarily understand all of the rules of everything they're doing, you can watch it happening in real time, which is super helpful, even if you just not trying to track exactly how it works, just trying to track how that actually plays out in real life can be a, a good decision on, on how you want to do it. Uh, and I'd, I'd recommend starting there. And then there, because it's a sport that has existed, I say sport, <laughs> it's an event that's been around since the, the late 70s. So there are multiple, if you look on it, look it up, there's books and blogs and things uh, about it as a playing sport. So even if you don't want to go out and invest in one of the books, there are multiple people who've written about it. Uh, and those are, are ridiculously accessible as well. Lots of people like talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And one thing I do, I do like to say, because we can talk, you know, till the cows come home about, um, about how many rules there are, but oh, actually a, a good dungeon master will expect a player a new player to come to their first game knowing no none. none of the rules because actually you can play your first game knowing precisely what you knew before this this last hour Pete like knowing nothing because actually if you're playing with other beginners and and, and the dungeon master is aware of that you learn the rules as you go along unlike a lot of mm -hmm. board games you learn the rules as you go along and you can come with literally a character sheet and a set of dice and no knowledge and the dungeon master will talk you through it mm -hmm. and that the game is designed that way what i would say is 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 finding a game can be tricky yeah and if we're talking about kind of parents and professionals talking to young people like what we don't want to do is start going go online and sort of find no. the game because actually you don't you don't know who you're playing with and you don't know who those are the best way to do it and then this isn't necessarily the easiest way is 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 a small to get into it a small group of potentially friends or potentially just people at, at school who who maybe have a similar interest and and maybe someone who's a bit more experienced doing the dm in position and, it, yeah. and if you think about i know it's a reference point but there's a show called strange stranger things mm -hmm. and the boys in that play dungeons and dragons at the beginning in the opening scene and that's kind of the best way as a youngster to get into it Without it's not to get too deep into the lore but just to kind of have a go with a gun with a with a, with a, with a small group yeah um, without a doubt got yeah. someone at school who can facilitate that even better i know not every school has got someone who's going to set up a dungeons and dragons club um and i know that's a long shot but you know parents oh. if you if you happen to know that there's a teacher there who's the, who seems a bit nerdy and occasionally walks around with a with a, with a big and sign on their on their t-shirt which the, is the dungeons and dragons the logo Jesus. then <laughs> then you can have that conversation and see Probably. if there's anything going on there i i completely agree and a, a very important thing that i think you just said is that um it's important to find people you like uh be the the trust fall aspect of it where you get to play and do anything and screw up and have fun realistically works best when that same environment exists at the table uh and so it's it's in a perfect world they will foster each other if that makes sense mm -hmm. like uh the ability to trust each other with your characters will uh continue to grow the ability to trust each other in real life and vice versa uh, if you have an environment that is not supportive of that, then the game is really no fun and you will not necessarily get anything out of it. So I definitely recommend finding a small group of people first to do this with. Um, and yeah, I, I dare you to find a school without a nerdy teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Emmy, just, just to finish off, uh, we'll give you an opportunity to plug your own stuff. Uh, on <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do people find your your youtube stuff sure uh, uh mainly we are on youtube and twitch we are uh, the adventures pack uh we're a bunch of nerdy friends sharing what we love and so we talk about a variety of nerd based things uh but it typically comes back to ttrpgs uh but we play video games we paint miniatures which is also a really fun thing that's just super nerdy and detail oriented. Oh, we didn't even get into that that's that's a whole oh, other podcast that's a whole other miniatures. thing <laughs> uh and uh we we play we play D D, and we have a, a series where actually we do talk about every entry in the monster manual we're about halfway through the monster manual it's very big 
Um, but yeah, it, I think it's very important no matter what to, because the great thing about communities like that that exist online is that it reminds you that as many books as there are about TTRPGs, like you were saying, Charlie, they're ridiculously accessible. It's easy to learn. And um, I know that's a very important thing to us at, at Adventures Pack is that everyone should feel like they can be a nerd if they want to be. Uh, everyone should be welcome doing that kind of stuff. And so that's what's important to us. <laughs>